You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he will see you on the dark side of the moon. It is Mr. Jeff McLarge. I will bring my flashlight because I will need one because it is dark. There is no dark side of the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark. Heartbeat, heartbeat, heartbeat. heartbeat. <laughs> What's up? How are you? I, you know, I'm good. I'm in a good place right now. I'm having a good day. I've got a new job, and nice. I'm really excited. It seems to be a lot more. F- well, not a lot more fun, but it's more fun. It's more challenging. It's a bigger scope of what I have to do for responsibilities, and the opportunities are a little bit bigger, and the budget's bigger, and all this great stuff. It's more money, isn't it? That's part of it, but a, a lot of like feeling good about the work that you do is feeling like it has an impact on the people that you work with. It could just be because it's new, but that's what it feels like right now, so it's great. At my job, what I do, it can get repetitive, but I do get that real big job satisfaction whenever there's a problem to be solved, and then I solve the problem, That all I absolutely love that. That's my favorite part of my job. Yeah, so, that's, yeah. I like moving things out of the way so that people can get stuff done. I manage people, so it's when they're successful, I'm successful. I like to be in a position where, where I can work together with people to accomplish really big things, and it's really fun. And that leads me to my overall general sort of well-being, and when I'm depressed because I'm, I dislike my job or there's some other aspect of my life that's less than optimal i often find myself doing what's called doom scrolling do you doom scroll bill Um, you don't doom scroll you're the least doom scrolly person i've ever met like put it this way i don't drink but i'll have a beer every once in a while right so i don't doom scroll but i have the equivalent of the occasional beer when it comes to doom scrolling yeah it's the equivalent like the way the algorithm works for like google news or something you know you sort of flip through and if you read two or three stories that are like everybody murdered in Playland yeah. Massacre. Like, all of a sudden, that's all you get for news, you know, because it figures, yeah. well, that's what you want to see. Same thing with, with any of the social media programs that are out there. But in feeling so good about this change in job and status and, and all of the thought that goes into it, what I found myself doing instead is not that. And going back and, like, listening to music and finding other things to occupy myself that keep me from sort of sitting around and going like, oh, let's see how much worse the world can get. Oh, it's this, <laughs> this is terrible. We're all going to die. You know, crash the yeah. ship into the heart of the sun. And I don't feel like that's necessary anymore. And that's another thing is like, I was not doom scrolling, but I was looking through Instagram today, you know, updating the Twibbly page. Mm-hmm. There was a certain, you know, story that was going on and without getting you know too involved in the actual story, let's just say it was easily something that people could take sides on, you know, which is every news story, but... Yes. And the freaking comment section was full of some of the most hateful and, like, the worst, like, the worst comments you could... Like, I wouldn't say that about people who I actively hate. And yeah. that list is pretty short and concise. 
all right? right? But I wouldn't say stuff like that. And this is, you know, they're talking about somebody they've never met. Can you imagine waking up in the morning just being absolutely furious at a person or worse yet, a group of people that you have no chance of meeting? I will tell you, I've thrown my legs over the side of the mattress in the morning. And, you know, when you sit there, you first you do the superhero pose like I always do. And then pick up my yeah. phone. I don't know why, because everybody in my house is asleep but me. But I still have, like flip through to see if anybody messaged me or sent me anything. And I find myself on like lousy days, usually days where there's been prolonged cold weather or snow or a lot of rain. And I'll start to flip through and read like, oh, this is this day's going to suck. This day's getting worse. Oh, I'm not even out of bed yet. You know, and I'm already setting the tone for a lousy day. The reason I bring this up is that in advance of our worst song ever today, I spent a couple of hours this week marinating myself in Britpop from the early 1990s. And one of the things that as a genre, subgenre that has in common is it is very, very mopey. And I don't think (laughs) it is very mopey. And I found myself thinking about like my daughter, Meg, who's one of the bubbliest, funniest people that I happen to know. And she marinates herself in like sad girl music, which in and of itself is very, very mopey. Like the way that the cycle, you know, will the circle be unbroken? Like the cycle just keeps repeating itself. 91, I was mopey, and so was the music I liked, but I was still a happy person. And now Meg is mopey, but she's still a happy person, and the music she likes is very, very mopey. The only difference is the pitch and timber of the person who sings it. The pitch and timber of the people who sings like modern mopey music is... (laughs) Well, admittedly, to be fair, in 1991, it was like... So, like I said, it's only pitch and timber. It's not that different. But we'll talk way more about that at the end of today's program. Right. Yeah. Before we get to the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. Uh, Which song that charted, okay, that's the caveat. It has to be a song that charted, has the most lyrics. Which song that charted has the most lyrics? Now. Right. I'm going to yep, tell here you. Here comes a qualifier. Yep. Um, no, it's I'm not, it's right not thick that, as a brick. Right. I'm going <laughs> to tell you right now that I'm pretty sure I know this one, and it's only because I was looking for information on a different song, and this little piece of trivia kind of popped up during my research. Okay. But I'll, I'll tell you at the end of the show. But this is the week, September the 5th, and I believe it is your turn to start this week. All right. Well, Bill, as we've talked about on this show before, we both have an interest in laughing at the people who believe in cryptids. Yes. Now we have yet another reason to laugh at people who believe in cryptids, because in 2019, Loch Ness Monster Survey that specifically sampled water in the lock and tested it for DNA to see what lived in the lock found no evidence of a giant existing marine reptile from the prehistory of the world, mm-hmm. nor did it find evidence of a giant sturgeon, which is the other potential animal that people can typically think of as being potentially a Loch Ness Monster. What they did find was a lot of eel DNA. So the prevailing theory, at least on the scientific side, with regard to the cryptid known as the Loch Ness Monster, is that it's a very big eel. So as you're talking, I'm getting this fantasy in my mind. As I am uh, stewing in middle age, I'm thinking to myself, if I could save time in a bottle, if I could take all the time and effort and money that has been sunk into looking in a lake to see if there is a living dinosaur that somehow survived 65 million years, if I could have all that time, I'd be immortal. 
Think about that. You'd be living forever. You'd be the kind of person who's just looking for a reason to die. Like, <laughs> please, please kill me. It'd be the first yeah. comment you made to any being you ever met. Yeah. It's almost like watching those Ghost Hunters shows. It's like an hour per episode and 20 episodes a year. And it's been on for how many years? And all you ever hear is, what's that? Did you hear that? What is that? Like they're talking to a dog or something. <laughs> Much like me, you and I are on the same wavelength for sure. And in the era where everybody carries around a giant high-definition camera, no yep. Bigfoot, no Yeti, no Loch Ness Monster, no Ogopogo, no yep. um, none of these things. No no UFOs that aren't like it, clearly airplane lights on a smeared lam- uh, camera lens. Uh, I am yet to see a chupacabra with my, <laughs> with my fancy new drone, which has a really nice camera on it. Yeah. Right. Even the movie Signs had a scene in it where someone had filmed space aliens with uh, like a handheld camera and it made it onto the news and still no one has been able to do that, right? So eel DNA, Bill, eel. Yeah, you would think, you would think with the advances in technology, there would be more proof and yet there's less. There's even less. Oh, hey, Jeff, guess what time it is? It's the end of the world as we know it. On September the 6th of 1994, your friend and mine, Harold Camping, predicted that the rapture would occur. Oh. And when, How'd he do? Uh, and, uh, well, yeah, not so well. Um, when it didn't happen, he was like, oh, I guess I forgot to carry the one because he changed, he, yeah, he changed his date over to September the 29th. How'd he do that? Uh, and then he changed it again to October the 2nd. You'd think that he would prognosticate a little further out just to be on the safe oh, side. Well, yeah, well, he totally did because uh, the following year, he tried again for prediction number four sometime in March. And then he uh, made one last prediction in like uh, May of 2011. And to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't happened. Not yet. We're I won't know because I'm not doom scrolling, Bill. Yeah. I'll have you know. It would show up in a doom scroll, and I'm not doing that anymore. I'll tell you what I've been doing. I've been checking out the checkout girls, Jeff. Uh, September the 6th of 1916, the very first, like, kind of official supermarket or grocery uh-huh. store, whatever. Uh, it's in. It's called a Piggly Wiggly, and I'm not making that up. <laughs> Piggly Wiggly, and it's in Memphis, Tennessee. That's a, a southern and midwestern now. A grocery store chain. I didn't know yeah, that that was yeah, a grocery still store chain. Yeah, it still exists. Yeah. Funny story. I was in Wisconsin with a girlfriend, and we were running errands, and we ran in. She's like, "Oh, we'll run in here." And I looked at the sign, and I said, "What are we gonna do in there?" And she goes, "We're gonna go get some groceries." And I was like, "Oh, it was a Piggly Wiggly." And she said, "Why? What do you think it is?" I'm like, "I don't know. A strip club?" She goes, "No, it's a grocery <laughs> store." And Approximately 20 minutes of hysterical laughter later, we went in and bought groceries. That is a pretty odd name, considering it's the first. You know what I mean? Yes. It's the first, and it's like, we're going to call it Piggly Wiggly. It's like, uh, why don't we try something like else, like yeah. anything else? I think it's I think it's funny. Um, yeah. I think it's funny. It's a cool, it's a kind of a cool name in retrospect, because it's easy to mistake for something like apparently a strip club, based on <laughs> my brain. That's actually an interesting conversation that I've had with my friends, you know, from all over the country. You know, Walmart is Walmart. That exists everywhere. And Target is Target and and what have you. But it's interesting how grocery stores and supermarkets are very regional. Yes. Like around here, it's mostly Market Basket and Stop and Shop. 
Shaw's used to be a big one, but it's not as big as it used to be. Right. But you don't really see those out of New England. There's a few that are national, but most of them, most of the markets like that are regional, yeah. Right. I think the only one that's really kind of like building up as a, an actual national brand is Aldi. Yep. And because I live in New England, I insist on calling it Aldi's because everything has an apostrophe S yes around here. Even stuff that doesn't. <laughs> uh, an Aldi is a German grocery store that is made in Rhodes in the United States. So they're also related to Trader Joe's. Yeah, same family owns both. Oh, really? I didn't know they were German. Yep. Have you ever been in one? It's the most German store you could possibly go into. <laughs> you know what? Now that you mention it, yes, it is It is very mathematically efficient. Yeah, it, it is super efficient, yeah. yes. Right. <laughs> what do we have for the 7th? September 7th, 1968. Bill, do you remember your childhood? Because I remember my Never. childhood. Never. Nope, not even a stitch. And Life I, began at 23 for me. I remember as a kid when I was home in the summertime in the afternoons watching the Banana Splits Hour, which used oh. to be a Saturday morning TV show, but I was way too little for that. Right. So that that show actually started in 1968 and ran into the 1970s and featured the Banana Splits, which was a group of uh, colorfully costumed animals. There was a... Furries, Jeff. They're furries. (laughs) Before they were furries, they were the Banana Splits. But there's... Was it Beagle, Fleagle, something, and Doc? One was an elf. No, it was Trooper and Snort. Drooper and Snort. There we go. Beagle, Fleagle, Drooper and Snort. They were actually the mascots for a theme park as well. Was it Six? I don't know if it was Six Flags, but they were a mascot for a theme park like in the realm of Disney because Hanna-Barbera had some deal with some park. At any rate, they became the live-action component of a cartoon show that showed Hanna-Barbera cartoons and some weird live-action stuff that they also made. Uh, before there's somebody calling in with a correction, I just looked up the lyrics to the song. The uh, the very catchy tra la 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 song, yes. and it's Flegel, Bingo, oh. Drooper, and Snork. The show's pretty old. Yes. So so yes. Yeah, so we don't have to record another correction because uh, we've yeah. corrected ourselves. What I remember from that show was mm-hmm. it was all they were all of Hanna Barbera's adventure cartoons. So they were short subjects, but there was Up and Adam Adam Ant. I remember I, that one too. I, there was a live action serial that was part of it called Danger Island, which is what I remember the most, about a family that washes up on a dangerous island with a bunch of pirates on it. Yes, I remember that one. There was was like a a bunch of like, kind of like island savage people. This is me being politically correct. Was that on Danger Island too? Not just pirates? Well, those those were the pirates. It was the show that gave Jan Michael Vincent his start. So he started, he was the sort of, the, the breakout star of that show. I don't think anybody else broke out of it, but he was on it and it ran for, one season i don't know that they ever got to the end of the adventure because they never showed it in order right when it was in reruns so you'd never know what the hell was going on for that 10 minute segment of the show but the the show itself ran for two seasons the banana splits yep and then later on uh in the second season that's when they had the adamant uh cartoon okay um they had the uh adventures of gulliver on there too and there was also the new adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Wow, I don't remember that at all. There was a bit of like a revival. I don't know, it was maybe like two years ago, I guess, or two or three years ago now, where they made a horror movie out of the Banana Splits. Yep. Uh, I guess the the copyrights had come up and they were just like free. So the, the, like somebody just like scooped it up and made a horror movie. Well, they, yeah, the, as I understand it, the producers wanted to make a film, live action film version of Five Nights at Freddy's, the horror video game that like literally even I played for yeah. a while. And 
the owners of that intellectual property said no. So they said, oh, well, what's like Five Nights at Freddy's? And there's a lot of similarities in the look and feel of the characters in that that you could map onto the characters from the Banana Splits. So it tells the same story pretty much as Five Nights at Freddy's with the Banana Splits characters instead of the Five Nights at Freddy's guys. Oh, so this is kind of like... Nosferatu and Dracula, except it's not awesome. Yes. Yeah, it, imagine it was Nosferatu, except it starred, like, the, the East Side Kids instead of, you know, a bunch of, like, German method actors. <laughs> Here's a horror movie that is good, and I get the feeling that we've talked about this from time to time, but I will always take the opportunity to talk about this movie. So September the 8th, 1960, was the opening day of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. That movie still holds up. Yes, it does. It's still, I, uh, still watchable, still still creepy, still uh, a good crime story. Everything about it, yeah. Everything about it. Still a great melodrama. There's like this million things going on. I think my favorite thing yep. in that whole film is that like 15-minute complete shift in tone and plot and everything to do with Marion Crane stealing money yep. with her boyfriend just gets thrown away when Norman is cleaning up after the murder. He just throws away the newspaper with all the money in it. And right. it's never brought up again. It was a whole, like, 15-minute red herring. God, I love that part. Yeah. There's, like, a lot of, like, little things, too. Uh, that was kind of, like, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's thing was to stick little bits in there. Is uh, whenever she is with her boyfriend at the very beginning of the movie, yep. she is wearing a white bra. And after she steals the money from the company and she's at the hotel... She is now wearing a black bra, which is kind of, it was sending the message of her going from innocent to evil. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's all sorts of little things like that. Psycho is one of the few franchises that I think everything is excellent. Parts two, three, four, which we'll mention a little bit later. And I think they're all excellent. And the TV series that came on, I don't know, probably about four or five years ago. Maybe more now if I think about it. Is it Bates Motel? Bates Motel, yeah. That was on, I think, I believe it was on A&E. That was excellent. That was a nice, slow burn and good storytelling, yeah. Yep. And based on the book by Robert Block, sort of loosely based on the story of Ed Gein. Oh, my God. That, that guy's last name, I have heard pronounced eight different ways and now I'm up to nine. I've never heard it called Gain. I say Gain because to me, E-I is pronounced A, like neighbor and way. So I say Gain. Most common one I've heard is Gein and now Gain. Goodness me. But yeah, uh, Ed Gain was a, I don't want to even call him a serial killer because he, no. he, I think he killed two people. He was more of a grave robber and necrophiliac than anything else. Yes. Um, but he had a weird relationship with his mother, and that's who Robert Block based the character of Norman Bates on. He did indeed. Ed Gain was actually the basis for Leatherface as well from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, I see. I didn't realize there was a connection there. Yeah, he's the he's a psycho that launched a thousand ships. I guess. <laughs> I guess if you're sensational enough, that that's how you yeah. do it. Yep. Goals, kids. Goals. Think big. All right. Um, speaking of big, what do we got next? September 9th, 1987, Pink Floyd, after a period of not releasing music because of the breakup they had with Roger Waters, yep. begins touring on their most recent record, A Momentary Lapse of Reason. There's some arguments to be made that this is a 
like the beginning of a really fresh period in Pink Floyd's history. Mm-hmm. It was a huge tour. It was. I actually saw that show. I saw that tour, and it was. They must have toured for a, over a year because I saw them in '88. Yeah, they toured for a long time. So I, I remember trying to get tickets for. They played Providence Civic Center, right? And I think they did two or three nights. Yeah. And the stage was so big that they actually like eliminated, I think it was the first 10 rows because the stage was so big. Right. So I'm 17 years old. I sleep in my car in the parking lot of the North Dartmouth Mall so I can be up and sitting in front of the mall at whatever ungodly time in the morning so I can be first in line to get tickets from the local ticket master. So I'm sitting there with my snacks and all that stuff. All of a sudden, these people start showing up and they all have wristbands. This was the first concert I had ever been made aware of that you could reserve your spot in line by showing up a couple of days early and getting a numbered wristband. I did not get tickets to the Pink Floyd concert because I didn't have a wristband. Dude, I was so bullshit about that. Oh, that sucks. I saw them at Gillette Stadium, uh, or Foxborough Stadium, because I guess it wasn't Gillette Stadium at that point. It was the right. old stadium. Which holds a remarkably more people than the Providence Civic Center does. Yeah, and I, it was packed. It was sold out. Yep. And my seats were so far away from the stage. Yep. There's a bit where a hospital bed comes whipping down on a wires all the way over the audience to the stage. Mm-hmm. I was sitting under the hospital bed. The hospital pit was suspended over my head. Uh-huh. In fact, I was literally in the last row at the stadium. It was the biggest concert I'd ever been to, and it was right. the one that I left the earliest from because, one, the members of Pink Floyd looked like ants because mm-hmm. I was so far away. You know the big circular disc that they shine the lasers on and show the pictures on that yes. dominates the stage? That was about as big as a quarter from where I was right. sitting. Me holding a quarter at the end of my, at the end of my hand. And now, I've seen shows at that venue before, too, and I was pretty far back. I had seen, like, the River Rave, so I saw a bunch of, like, mm-hmm. I saw a bunch of bands that would never fill that place. We were so far back that, you know, you're, you, like you said, you're watching Ants on the, on the stage, so you spend most of your time watching the screens on the side. And because you're so far back, it's out of sync. Yes. Yes, so, yes. So sitting in the back row like you were, because I was about three-quarters of the way back, so sitting even further back, it must have been like watching an old Godzilla movie. There, there was a there was a solid like one and a half second delay, and it was, it was like watching Godzilla versus Megalon. That's a really good description. <laughs> As an older person, I've gone back and listened to Momentary Lapse of Reason, and I appreciate it a lot more now than I did when it was new. Yeah. And but I stayed through all of the Momentary Lapse of Reason tracks that they played live. They played like Dogs of War, and they played Learning to Fly, and they played some of the others. And they played some stuff off of Dark Side of the Moon, and they played Wish You Were Here, and they started Shine On Your Crazy Diamond, and I was like, this is really a Roger Waters song, and then they started to play stuff off the wall, and I was like, nope, that's yeah. it, I'm out. Yeah, and- that was, yeah, that was a very Coke and Pepsi mentality at that point. You know, if I could go back in time, I would probably have the same attitude, because I was way more on the Roger Waters fandom than on the David Gilmore fandom, but... As now, no, I, 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 I'd be foolish to leave at that point. I would have been elbowing my way closer to the front so I could, de- I could synchronize the visuals <laughs> with the audio. 
Honest <laughs> to God, I like think about that one show. I've had a couple of bad concert experiences, and that one was one, and that one was by my own making. That was me being stubborn and stupid as an 18 year old. So right. I, I wish I could go back in time and, and stay there till the end. Yeah. All right. We go on to the 10th, September the 10th, 1953, the Swanson TV Dinner. Be, makes its way to supermarket shelves at your local Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> Dinner of the future. Yeah. The uh, the idea that you could you could pre cook um, meat and vegetables and a dessert and then simply reheat it so that it could be eaten by a family is the most 1950s thing in the history of 1950s things. Yeah. The fact that it's called a TV dinner is great because it starts to build a whole ecosystem around that single centralized piece of entertainment in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it's still a thing. Oh, sure is. Uh, TV dinners is still a thing. I get them on occasion. I stick with the one. I got one that I buy all the time. It's by Hungry Man, which yep. might be a sh- offshoot of Swanson. I'm not sure. Yeah, Swanson uh, makes the Hungry Man brand. Okay. And it's it's the fried chicken. Like, it's fried chicken patties, and it's got corn, and it's got mashed potatoes, and it's got and a brownie. brownie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was a kid, we used to. Some, my mom would very rarely get those, but sometimes she would. And if she did, it was either Salisbury steak or fried chicken, and those were what we would get. Yeah. And uh, the thing with the with the TV dinner is like when we were a kid. I remember my grandmother like making it and all that. Like we, you and I, Gen X, are from the like the microwave oven generation. You know, back whenever my grandmother, back when Meme was making them for us, now that I think about it, how much time did they actually save? Well, Not much. No prep. <laughs> yeah, well, there's no prep time, right? So yeah. uh, there's no prep time. All you got to do is like, oh, turn the oven to 325, click, click, click. Yeah. And then you take the cardboard part off of the foil packaging that the food is in. Yeah. Then when the oven goes, ding, you just put it in the oven for 25 minutes and then take it out and it's done. Yeah, with so all the prep time for you know for making meat, meatloaf and potatoes and corn and brownies and other stuff you don't have to do so it saves a ton of time. Yeah, maybe, but it's still over a half an hour. I want it in seven minutes. Yeah, broken up into two sections of where I have to uh, stir the mashed potatoes and remove the brownie. The mashed potatoes are cold in the middle, burned on the outside, and the brownie is frozen in the middle <laughs> and, and burned on the outside. And getting back to the do- the doom scrolling topic, Air Two Four. Let me tell you, this is why. Tucker Carlson is possibly the dumbest man in the, in the United States of America. And it has nothing to do with his politics. Okay. Tucker All right, I'll Carlson. Bite. I'll yep. bite Tuck- like it's a big piece of salty Salisbury steak, Bill. Yep. Tucker Carlson is heir to the Swanson TV dinner fortune. Wow. Yeah. I believe it's his mother's father so his grandfather that started the swanson tv dinner thing this guy is just he's got money hand over fist never has to work a day in his life because he is heir to a big fortune and yet this guy gets pissed off for a living oh what do you do for work oh i get pissed off you're dumb you are so dumb you could be on a hammock in tahiti right now but instead you're over there furrowing your brow and asking questions all right. Tucker Carlson, seriously, let's have a beer and talk about anything but. I got to talk you out of your job. All right. Wrapping up the week. September 11th, 1903. The Milwaukee Mile racetrack in Wisconsin holds its very first race. A guy named William Jones from Chicago wins a five-lap speed contest. And this racetrack is the oldest continuously operating racetrack in the United States. And it's a one-mile oval. Uh-huh. 
the same thing you'd see in like what would become NASCAR and American stock car racing and sort of set the standard for the oval shaped and sized track for races that are time, speed, laps, and first place. Right. 1903 in the history of cars, though. Right, 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 yeah. That's pre-Model T. It's pre-Model A. It's maybe five years after Mercedes-Benz builds the first internal combustion engine. So you're dealing with cars like, again, like the Thomas Flyer that won the New York to Paris road race and a bunch of hand-built, crazy, motorized (laughs) horse carts. Yeah. that are racing around an, o- an oval track to s- try and set a speed record. I think we made this joke about something else a couple of weeks ago, but like with everybody's just like kidneys just popping like out of their ears. Right. And all the fillings dropping out of their head. It's the fastest I've ever driven. I'm going 38 miles an hour, you know? You know, I'm a little upset and I'm going to have to double check and look that the Milwaukee Mile, that belongs in Gran Turismo just because of its history. It should be. It might not be the most glamorous racetrack out there. You know, it's not Nuremberg, but holy cow, just for its history, it's the oldest and still operational racetrack uh, in the world, not just the United States, in the world. Right. You and I, we had Seekonk Speedway, which is modeled on that same track because it's an oval track. Yeah. Which is, I think, is a quarter mile, right? I think Seekonk Speedway is a quarter mile. That's where we used to go when we were kids to see to see races. That's where you used to go. I know. Where I used to go <laughs> as a kid. There's one up here in Hudson, the Hudson Speedway, which is another half mile, I think it's a half mile oval track. They do like spectator races and crazy things like school bus races and stuff. There was a racetrack on the grounds of Foxborough Stadium where you saw Pink Floyd. Now, my first haunted house was at a, uh, was in the back of, uh, of that stadium. So on my way home one night, I was driving through the parking lot and I found myself on their racetrack. Like, oops. <laughs> and I said... Well, now that I'm here, right? <laughs> I took a lap on the, on the race. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd All you right. do? Did you win? Uh, I came in first place. Yeah. Oh, nice. And last, apparently. And, Same yeah. time. I won the only time. and lost. Yes. All right, moving on to the celebrity birthdays. September the 5th, 1951, everybody's favorite Batman. And if you bring up an argument, they'll argue right back with you. Michael Keaton. He can play anything. Got his start doing, like, broad comedy has done drama, superhero movies, action adventure stuff. Oh yeah. All kinds of things. I think uh I don't know if he's done musicals, but I think Johnny Dangerously was pretty close. Yeah. He yeah, he's very versatile. I remember actually as a kid seeing him do stand-up comedy and his stand-up Did you really? was Yeah, his stand-up was very very funny as I remember. I'm going to have to look to see if I can find some stuff on YouTube. It has to, it must exist. Ah, um, cool. And uh, whenever I went to see the new Spider-Man movies from the MCU, I was very happy that he was playing the Vulture. He did an excellent job as Adrian Toomes. He was. He was great. He was the best part of, definitely the best part of the first of those Spider-Man movies. And prizing his role as Batman in The Flash, because they're doing a Flashpoint thing where his the Earth where he stayed as Batman is a thing. Oh, wow. So, yep. I guess it's going to carry over into some other DC Universe movies as well. But I thought that was cool that he would come back to do that. He also played like that sort of character who was examining the deconstruction of superhero movies in Birdman, which was really strange and good. All right, moving on to September the 6th. September 6th, 1947. The first like real breakout female actress from Saturday Night Live, Jane Curtin, who went Ooh. on into sitcoms like Kate and Alley and Third Rock from the Sun. She did a bunch of movie work as well. 
She was and so much really fun. funny. Yeah, she was so much fun on um, on Third Rock from the Sun. I remember I used to watch Kate and Allie, but I can't remember that show being very funny. I just watched it because one of the second bananas on the show was, you know, she was about my age. Allie, Allie later. I can't remember their name. It was Allie something. Allie Larder. Um, yeah, she was in our favorite monkey movie there, Shakma. Uh, but uh, anyway, get back to Jane Curtin. She was very, very, very funny on Saturday Night Live. And she's done a bunch of stuff. She ended up doing some movies, too. I remember her in a movie called How to Beat the High Cost of Living, which was one of the first movies that I saw whenever we first got HBO. Do you have a favorite sketch from Saturday Night Live with her in it? I really liked the Chevy's Girls. It was her, Gilda Radner, and I can't remember the other woman's name. She was very tall and Lorraine skinny. Newman? I think it is Lorraine Newman, yes. They sang this song, like a love song to Chevy Chase, but they had such <laughs> great harmonies, and it was just weird to hear all three of them singing actually very well. Like, you didn't expect right. those voices to come out of them. It was really good. Mine was where she was, she did a lot of character parts where she was the interviewer on like a talk show and was yeah. interviewing someone who was bananas. And right. she was interviewing Bill Murray who had overcome this disease where he can only say five words. Uh-huh. The answer to every question is, that's true, you're absolutely right. And finally she realizes like those are the only five words he can say. And his book <laughs> is called, That's True, You're Absolutely Right. <laughs> and every page of the book is just, that's true, you're absolutely right. He's like, you haven't overcome this at all, have you? That's true, you're absolutely right. And <laughs> And it takes like four minutes to get to the punchline of it. <laughs> that's that's my favorite Jane Curtin sketch. So uh, moving on to another Saturday Night Live alumni, born September the seventh, nineteen sixty-seven, Leslie Jones. Ah, yeah, I, she's also made a big splash in the Ghostbusters, right? Yeah, she was in the uh, the all female cast of the Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And she was also in the Coming to Number Two America, the Coming to America sequel. I literally like jumped off the couch with excitement when I saw her appear on the screen because I love Leslie Jones. She is so funny. I know she's definitely one of your favorites amongst the recent cast members. Uh, I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in any detail in a long time. Like, I'm going to say this and feel bad about it, but I'm not going to feel that bad, but decades. So I can't, oh, wow. I don't have a favorite sketch of hers, but she's always funny. And I actually, I really like the Ghostbusters the, with her and and Melissa McCarthy and... Yeah, I didn't see it. I know former Twibley alumni Jezebel Grace was a big fan of it, but I haven't seen that one yet. I don't watch Saturday Night Live, but I watch the clips on YouTube. And uh, I watch a lot of compilation clips, and I actually just watched a compilation clip that was basically nothing but Leslie Jones telling Colin Jost to shut up. And it was just one (laughs) after the other. It was super funny, yeah. Moving on. September 8th, 1957. American actress Heather Thomas, and certainly the apple of many of the Gen Xers' eyes. Yeah. I had a lot of posters of her. She was was on The Fall Guy. That's probably where she's best known for being, Mm -hmm. uh, aside from posterized. But she was on that show for a long time. She also did some film work. Uh, She was in what was, uh, I remember us bringing up some time ago, that there was a Kind of a weird subgenre in the 70s and early 80s of teenagers with psychic powers. Yeah. Yeah. And she was in one of those movies with your friend of mine, Scott Bayo, called Zapped. Zapped. Yeah, with uh, <laughs> Bible Man there. Willie yeah. Ames also. Yeah. Yep. Where they smoke the radioactive weed and get psychic powers. That was a great teenage 
boo movie. Yeah, a titcom, as it were. Heather Thomas was perfectly cast for it. God love you, Heather Thomas. Moving on to the ninth, we have another Thomas. Uh, not quite as voluptuous as Heather. But, I, uh, I had no people, posters of this Thomas. Yeah, I had no. I have no posters of Henry Thomas, uh, born in 1971. Probably best known as Elliot from the E.T. movie. Hey, you know that song Highlight was about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Thomas was also in, I mentioned it uh, briefly before, he was in Psycho 4 where he played a young Norman Bates. He was excellent. Psycho 4 was an excellent movie. He definitely made his mark in E.T. And like most young actors, when they have such a humongous monster hit as their first film, they sort of blip into obscurity pretty quickly. He sort of did, but he managed to he managed to cl- kind of climb out of it into pictures like Psycho 4 yeah. and some of the other stuff that he's done after that. So Yeah, he did, uh, he did Moby Dick with Patrick Stewart as well. All right, moving on. September 10th, 1968. British film director Guy Ritchie, known for such films as Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, and that terrible movie he made with his wife at the time, Madonna. Huh. I'm going to guess that if you look at the categories of things that make Madonna movies bad, uh, <laughs> Sean Penn, who's made a lot of movies and won Academy Awards, probably not him. Guy Ritchie, who made Snatch, which is awesome, so probably not him. And the fact that Madonna had big roles in both of those, I'm not pointing the finger at her, but... Oh, I will. I'm not shy. <laughs> <laughs> So Guy Ritchie sort of revitalized British crime movies and made them fun. There's a bunch of action movie type stuff in them. They're really funny in places, and they're really well put together. He also pulled together a stable of really good actors. That's where we get Jason Statham from, among other people. All right, and wrapping up the birthday, September the 11th, 1961, Elizabeth, or otherwise known as E.G. Daly. Uh, she's an American actress. Uh, yes. She, she gets started young. She was in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. She was Dottie, as you remember. Uh, she was also, she had a weird part in the movie Better Off Dead where she just sang a song and that's all she did. Uh, and she was also in Valley Girl with Nicolas Cage. I think Valley Girl was like five years before Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, it was, 1980, it was 1983, it. so it was a few years, yeah. Yeah. Um, she's probably made the most of her money from doing voice acting and stuff like Rugrats and the Powerpuff Girls. Yeah, right. She's done. She did a bunch of Nicktoons. Yep, and Tommy Pickles. Tommy Pickles, yeah. The song that she sang in Better Off Dead was called Better Off Dead. Better Off Dead. Yeah, it was better off not listened to. It was. Uh... <laughs> it's not bad. I think she has a whole record out. I think, oh, I'm does pretty she? sure she's got a whole. Yeah, I think she's got a whole LP. Yeah. Huh. That's one. That's one I'll have to go look look up if it's a real thing or if I'm just imagining it. But I think she has oh. a whole LP out. You know what song I remember her doing? No. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff. We touched upon this earlier. We're going to be talking about Britpop as a uh, a wide brush, but more specifically, what is our worst song ever this week? So, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I am not doom scrolling because things are going good right now and I'm trying to stay in that sort of positive frame of mind. And in doing so... Over the last couple of days, as we've been planning out the show, yep. picking the worst song ever, I've spent a lot of time marinating myself in Britpop. <laughs> now, Britpop, for those of you who are not aware, is the grunge music of the Brits. Same time period, a lot of the same central themes. The difference is Britpop is a little bit happier and more irreverent. Grunge is less. Because it rains slightly less in London than it does in Seattle. <laughs> Just a tiny bit. 
So in listening to all of this Britpop, I thought, like, what song do I hear on the radio more than any other that only has one single really here in the United States and is indicative of that whole style of music? And it's overplayed. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about describing the song to my daughter uh, in a minute. But it's, it's a song, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. Okay, well, hold on. let's play the clip. that this song is kind of like overplayed this song once you get right down to it is about four and a half to five seconds long just yes. repeated over and over and over again <laughs> the same the same four bars over and over again yes for four yeah. minutes when i described the song to meg because i was getting ready for the show today she goes what's the worst song ever i said it's the bittersweet symphony by the verve and she sound out song that is i'm like take yourself lucky you've heard this song in like 50 stores and gas stations and she just started laughing and i said i'll put it on Yep. And I put it on in the first strains of the, which we'll talk about in a minute, the string section, which makes up the first four bars of the song that continuously loop. She goes, oh, yeah, I know this song. I've heard this song in a store yep. because that's where the song gets played. It's like on every single store mix in the history of stores. It's actually built around a sample that's redone from an orchestral version of the Rolling Stones song from 1965 called The Last Time. You may not know that song, and but I don't. maybe we can insert a clip. Of the actual song, and then of the orchestral piece, and then you can see where they sort of took this from. So, I I know the song Bittersweet Symphony just because you can't escape it. Yes. And they used it, actually, they used it very well in this movie called Cruel Intentions. It was kind of like like the big twist ending and it was the song that was played over the montage that showed you what you were really looking at uh, during the course of the movie. Cruel Intentions is the most 90s movie I can think of and this <laughs> song fits so perfectly into it. If that movie was any more 90s, the name of the movie would be, oh God, everything sucks. Um, <laughs> but the song, this song fits perfectly with its minor chords and its uh, its orchestral and this that and the other take that out of it i can't deal with this song it's a loop of somebody else's music and i kind of have a problem with sampling and i can't imagine how the band feels about it because basically all you hear is the, the orchestral version of the rolling stone song that loop that just keeps going over and over again right. and then uh richard ashcroft just like moaning about whatever it is he's moaning about. <laughs> like a typical Britpop song. Definitely a typical Britpop. There's a thing, the thing that I sort of, and admittedly, I, I would have done it differently too. And I'm not a super, super sample guy, but I, I can appreciate the idea of saying, oh, there's something I can do with this that someone else has built. I can make something out of it. I can deconstruct whatever this song is. And going to that like one removed level of the Rolling Stones for this weird orchestra record, that was put out by the Rolling Stones manager's record label, right. right, in like 67 or 66. And going in and recreating that four-bar sample with slightly harder, like, I don't know how you describe it, but less 
comfy violin and then building the song around it is interesting. I think that's really neat. I think Richard Ashcroft is interesting. Who didn't think it was interesting were the Rolling Stones' lawyers who sued the absolute <laughs> ever-loving blue-eyed shit out of Richard Ashcroft and and Firth. So and that company, yeah. so that one they negotiated well, it was it was originally owned by the record company that the Rolling Stones were on, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, and then another guy, the guy that produced the orchestral album, their other manager. It was uh, it was like Arco Records or something. It was this little smaller label, but he owned part of it too because they owned the last time. So they all sued him. The Rolling Stones label was like, we, we want half the money. Any money you make, we want half. So that record company that the Verve was on was like, we, we don't have enough lawyers to fight the Rolling Stones. So they agreed to that. And then that song went worldwide. It went, it was humongous. It was gigantic when it came out. I think they got off easy because the Rolling Stones wrote way more than half of that song. So, well, what happened was it, the song got huge and the Rolling Stones lawyers came back and said, did we say 50%? We meant 100%. So they yeah. literally took... And a writing credit. They got a writing credit. Keith Richards and Mick Jagger got a writing credit uh, along with Richard Ascroft. And they took 100% of the proceeds until 2019 when the guy who owned Arco Records died and his son took over. By then, Jagger and Richards had relinquished their rights to Richard Ashcroft, and they convinced the son of the guy that inherited that record company to release the rights back to Richard Ashcroft, too. They still took like $5 million off of Richard, Richard Ashcroft. So, I mean, the business side of it, the lawyer side of it sucks. The song is cloying and repetitive. The lyrics are mumbly and annoying. And it's still interesting. The reason I I wanted to talk about this one is because that song and all the legal stuff and everything like that is not indicative of the rest of the catalog that they had. And they had a couple of hits in England that we didn't have here. Sonnet, Lucky Man, Drugs Don't Work. And another record that didn't even... I don't even know if they released it in the United States that came after this one. Mm. But they were sort of indicative of like all of the bands that were fighting for Britpop stardom at the time. Some of which survived until now in some incarnation or other, and others didn't. Verve is one that hasn't, although Richard Ashcroft still goes out and shows up at, like, you know, Glastonbury and plays Bittersweet Symphony, but he doesn't do other stuff. Well, if they own the rights to this song now, they're not struggling because they got about 7 million monthly listens on Spotify. That's good money, you know? Yeah. And the majority of it is from Bittersweet Symphony, so... I don't doubt that at all. And, again, I went back and listened to it, like, very closely, and I I found a a deeper appreciation for it because I went to listen to it on purpose. And I was like, you know, this isn't a bad song. I can see why this eclipsed everything else that they did. Sonnet, Lucky Man, and Drugs Don't Work aren't bad songs either. But, boy, do they fall into the... The no guitar solo, just rhythm guitar, yeah. relatively slow drums, mumbly lyrics about sad things that makes Britpop so dated. So, like, for those of you who don't know, like, other Britpop bands are Oasis, who are way more nasally and became really famous in the United States. Supergrass, you might not know, but their song is like, We are young, we are free, we are whatever, it's a tree. <laughs> Pulp. Who were way more bloopy and like and Blur with Damon Albarn, which is a mix between the two, and even Radiohead from the time period of like 93, 92, when they put out the Pablo Honey record. They all fall into that group of artists who are struggling to be the saddest people ever. I was afraid to bring that up because I didn't want you beating me up. 
But I listened to a little bit of the Verb today. I listened to the album that Bittersweet Symphony is on, and I listened to a little bit of their first album. The way Ashcroft sings reminds me, I'm not saying he sings like him, it just reminds me of Radiohead. It has, oh, that, yeah. it has that sort of like almost no melody to the song. He's just kind of like freestyle singing where... The vocal is just kind of like another instrument. It's not really a thing. The weird thing like with Bittersweet Symphony 2 is, and I've listened to this a couple of times in a couple of different ways, like on the radio, off my iPod, on a good stereo, in headphones, in ambient, right? Through my computer speakers. And in every case, the volume level of the vocals is just a little bit under the volume level of the strings. Yes. So it's like you can barely understand it. And that is something indicative of a ton of Britpop from the time. So your fear of being like, you know, beaten up for (laughs) disrespecting Radiohead on the show. I don't know why you would. Early Radiohead, like their first record, Pablo Honey, is a record even I don't go back to and listen to. And I think Radiohead is the greatest band of the millennium. I am looking at a picture of the Verve right now. Four out of the five of these guys are the most British-looking people I've ever seen in my life. The fifth person is Ashcroft himself, who not only looks completely British, he is kind of shaped like a map of England. (laughs) If you go back and and listen, if you find yourself having an hour to kill and want to spend time on YouTube going through Britpop stuff, you'll definitely hear similarities between these guys in Pulp and Blur and... But there's like 50 bands that, that all sound like this. Yeah. But it's not a bad place to spend an hour or so. You can see where I like to think that sad girl music kind of draws a lot of its inspiration from. Yeah. Before there were sad girls, there were a bunch of sad British boys. <laughs> As we used to call it back then, shoegazer music. Segwaying smoothly into our very popular and always well-received trivia question, what song that charted has the most lyrics? All right, so I was looking for another piece of information for some other something. I was a a crossword puzzle or something that I was doing. And I actually bumped into this piece of trivia. So my original, had I not done that, my original guess would have been Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf, which has approximately 72,000 words in it. (laughs) But it turns out it's actually Rap God by Eminem, which is a song I've never heard. You, my friend, are correct. Yeah, 1,560 words in that song. Yes. Unique words. Yep. Uh, like I said, uh, I had to qualify it with that charted because right. uh, fairly recently a guy by the name of Harry Shotta uh, put out uh, a single called Animal, which is about the same length as Rap God, six minutes. And his song clocks in with 1,771 but, Jesus Christ. But, Does he advertise micro machines halfway through it? <laughs> but your friend and mine over here, Harry Shotta, uh, has eh, about 100,000 monthly listens on Spotify. The song, the song never charted, so I'm disqualifying it. Also, to Eminem's credit, he doesn't actually start rapping in Rap God until like the one-minute part. So he's like, yeah, yeah I'm going to stick 1,500 words in this six-minute song, and I'm just going to sit on the starting line for the first minute. Nice. I got that one. Hey, one in a row. One in a row. All right. So uh, that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. 
Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends about it. Do it now before the world comes to an end. Any minute. It's coming. Any day now. <laughs>